for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture passage comes from Isaiah 1, 2-9, and Isaiah 2, 2-5. Isaiah 1, 2-9. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, and your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It, it is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left. Like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord hosts had not left with us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah 1, 2 through 9. Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come, and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Israel, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 2, 2-5 This is God's Word. Is the meaning of Christmas. Many of us have our personal opinions. I want to cite three. Carrie Fisher said, Christmas is about being good to one another. It's about the Christian ethic. It's about kindness. Agnes Faro opined, What is Christmas? It's tenderness for the past, courage for the present, hope for the future. It's a fervent wish that every cup may overflow with blessings rich and eternal, that every path may lead to peace. A New York Times ad once proclaimed, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will 
be able to put together a world of unity and peace. These are all wonderful thoughts. They articulate the desires of just about every human heart. And that's because we were made for a world of love, kindness, unity, and peace. These thoughts do grow out of the birth of Christ for they express his teaching, they express his character. But they all fall short of the real meaning of Christmas. Because it's not us who will bring in peace and unity. It's not us who will bring love to be victorious. It's the one whose birth we celebrate this December 25th. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, <clears throat> may your Holy Spirit bring your word to cut into our hearts to see ourselves as we are, but then to lift our eyes to heaven, to see you for who you are, to see Jesus for who he is. May we embrace him, not just this morning, but every day. Bring into our hearts the deepest meaning of Christmas. Amen. So, this Advent, our sermon series will be coming from Isaiah. And you might be wondering, why are we, all of our sermons coming from Isaiah and not from the, the birth narratives of Jesus and Matthew and, and Luke? It's because Advent is a time of expectation. And there's no book that sets our expectations, or at least the Israelites' expectations for the Messiah in a greater way than Isaiah does. Now, as we open this book and we see that it begins with a denunciation of Israel and their sin, a pronouncement of God's judgment upon Israel, we wonder, why would we start Advent with such proclamations? And it's because only when we understand the depths of our sinfulness, the severity of God's judgment, will we grasp the greatest meanings of Christmas. Because Christ came to die for that sin, to take that judgment. He paid for it so that we could be free. And so our sermon is going to follow these two passages that were just read. We're going to look at the depths of our sinfulness, the severity of God's judgment, and then the forgiveness and restoration that God offers us. Our passage opens in verse 1-2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Israel is going to be laid bare by Isaiah as he depicts their sinfulness. But he begins by saying, heavens, earth, everyone give ear to what I'm doing with Israel. Because God 
Work in Israel is a lesson for all of us. And so we need to pay close attention for the words that we hear spoken to Israel today could easily be spoken to us today. And the offer that Jesus give, that God gives to Israel is an offer that is given to all of us today. He's using Israel as an example. And then he says, Children, I have reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah is about to uncover the depths of the sinfulness of Israel. But he begins with their identity. We do not understand how sinful we are for two reasons. We don't really grasp the holiness of God. And we don't begin with our true identity as children of God. Because our identity determines how we see our actions, gives us the eyes through which we see it, and we become blind to our own, eyes, our own sin when we trade away our true identity in Christ and adopt other identities. Uh, give me, let me give you a couple examples. For instance, if I find my identity in being a businessman, then I might manipulate people to get sales. I might step on others to get up the corporate ladder. I might trade my time with my family and for my job. And yet, I'll think that's all normal. If I was a politician and I found my identity in, in politics, then I would present a false persona to people. I would twist the truth. I would vilify my opponents and present myself as a person of character. Our identity outside of Christ covers our sinfulness. But when we begin with our identity as those created by God, then we will see when we become masters of our own lives, we've rebelled against God. When we understand our identity as those who are created in God's image, we will see everything in our character that is not like God, that is not like Jesus Christ, is sin. And when we ignore the fact that our identity is beloved by God, and we go after everything else but God to fulfill our needs, we are spiritual adulterers. And so Isaiah opens with their identity. You are my children. And yet you're not connecting to me. You're not following me. He said, even animals understand their identity better than you do and follow it. The ox and the donkey... They know to follow their master, but, but you don't. 
And so Isaiah continues and begins to delve into their sin. Verse 4. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. See, their lives were not simply peppered with a few sins here and there. They were immersed in sin. Their entire lives were lived in sin. They were weighed down with iniquity. And their sin was generational. It was passed on one generation after another after another, resisting God and going their own ways. Their actions completely corrupted. They had left the Lord. They had abandoned the Lord. It says they despised the Lord. They despised the Lord because they didn't seek their fulfillment in him. They compromised the word of God and they went after false gods. And that's a way of despising God because they're saying, God, you're not the God we want. We want a God who's very different from you. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we like Israel today? Have we forgotten our master? Our lives more than peppered by sin, but that almost everything in our lives, because we pursue our ways rather than God's, is rebellion against him. Do we ever despise God? Do we become angry at him when circumstances go differently than we think they should go? Do we feel he's abandoned us? And do we wish, prefer another God who would follow our plans? Fulfill our desires? Or do we reinvent God and say, God is a God of love and he's going to accept everyone? We reinvent him because we despise the true God who is love, holy, and just. And he continues, Why will you still be struck down. Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. And as God tried to bring correction into the nation of Israel, they still didn't get it. They still didn't learn. They continued to rebel against him. And note what it says here. No, your lives are not simply peppered with sin here and there. Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is faint. Is it true of us as well? Our perspective is myopic, our values twisted, our motivation selfish, our heart weak. They were sinners by nature. It captured their entire lives. And scripture says that we are all Sinners by nature. But we don't want to face that. We live lives of denial. And I'll point to myself first. Renowned psychiatrist Carl Menninger, who wrote the book, Whatever Happened to Sin? 
said this, to know thyself must mean to know the malignancy of one's own instincts and to know as well one's power to deflect it. Here is someone who studied people and he is saying, there is a malignancy in our own instincts. We have a sin nature. And yet we don't want to deflect it. We don't want to admit it because we have this tremendous power to deflect it, to deny it, to excuse it, to not face it in ourselves. If we don't face the depths of our sinfulness, we will not understand why God judges us. When we get it, we will. And so God sees the sinfulness, the rebellion, the very hatred and spiritual adultery of Israel. And he's seen it generation after generation. He was very, very patient with them until he finally brought the hammer down. He predicted they would go into exile for 70 years. And so he allows the Assyrian army to come down on the northern kingdom, Israel, and obliterate it. And we read in verse 7, God's judgment. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate, it's overthrown by foreigners. The daughter of Zion, Israel, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah depicts the desolation. Foreign nation coming in, taking them away. Almost a complete obliteration, yet God preserves some. Otherwise, they would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, Israel was God's chosen people. They were chosen to be a blessing to the world. They were to be a light to show the world the one true God is Yahweh. And so, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see he writes to them, if you obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. And the reason for that is that as the light of the world, the ones who are to show the world that Yahweh is the one true God, God spoke the language of the Near Eastern culture. And that was nation after nation had their own gods. The question was, who was the true God? Who was the powerful God? And they would determine that by how blessed a nation was. If you're a very blessed nation, then your God must be real. If you're a cursed nation, then we don't want that God. And so God spoke their, their language. And he put his love upon this people and he delivered them from Egypt. And we have the story of Rahab who's in Jericho and she looks at the God of Israel and says, look at what that God has done. 
He freed you from slavery. He brought you through the wilderness. He protected you. I want that God. That's the true God. And that's the way God was working. And so as long as Israel was faithful to him and serving him, God would bless them. They would be victorious. As long as they depended upon God and not upon Egypt, he would preserve them. But if they turned and began to worship other gods, God had to curse them. So for instance, if they were worshiping Baal and God blessed them, everyone would say, oh, Baal's the one true God. Or if they disobeyed God's word and God still blessed them, the world would say, oh, so you can continue in sin and it doesn't matter to God. But God is going to proclaim who he is. That he is holy. That he hates sin. And he does it by bringing judgment upon them. God does judge sin. Justice is central to the character of God, and we would really want it no other way. We do not want our judges to be unjust, to look the other way when crimes are committed. We shouldn't want the same from God. We need to understand that our sin is deep, deeper than we're ever willing to admit. But we have to come to the realization that we deserve God's judgment. One time, I went with another man in the church to visit somebody who had come to the church for the first time uh, Sunday before. When we got there, we opened the Bible and we shared the gospel. We sin, that sin separates us from God. He has to judge us, but he placed that judgment upon Christ. So when we believe in Christ, when we accept him as our Savior, we try to stop being our own Savior and trust him as a Savior, you'll have a relationship with God. You'll have eternal life. And so she says, I want that. And she says, I want to pray the prayer. But I didn't really sense that she understood the depths of her sinfulness and the severity of God's judgment. So I said, well, well, you know, we are sinners. And then I talked about the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, you know, that anger in our hearts is of the same nature as murder. And so in a sense, we are all murderers in our hearts. And she says, yeah, 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 let me pray the prayer. So I said, she's not, still isn't really getting it. So I opened up uh, Mark chapter 7 and shared Jesus' words where he says, Out of the heart comes sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. And we recognize these as, as bad sins. But he continues, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come out of our hearts. I said, that comes about our hearts. And she said, yeah, yeah, I get that. I want to pray the prayer. And I still saw she wasn't really getting it. Because if you don't understand your sinfulness, you don't understand the judgment of God, you're not going to cry out to him for Savior. So then I shared something that crew has in their little booklets. Two circles. And I said, these circles represent our lives. And there's a little chair. And I say, and one of those pictures a cross is on that chair and says you see we are to serve Jesus Christ he is to be on the throne of our lives 
and there's little dots around it. And these are aspects of our life, whether it be our family, our job, our hobbies, uh, our religious activities, our, our compassion. These all flow out of Christ. But the other life is with self on the throne. And the circles are all over the place, all driven by our selfishness. I said, that's the essence of sin. She looked at that and she said, I'm in trouble. She finally got it. She got and understood how sinful she was. Her entire life was permeated with sin because self was on the throne of her life. We all need to realize that God is holy. He hates sin. God is just. He judges the sin. But God is love. And he offers forgiveness and restoration. And so we read in Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. We just read how sinful Israel was. And God is saying, I'll take those sins and I'll make them as white as snow. You know, the, the little booklet, uh, Our Daily Bread, has this in one of their pages. It says, Bible commentators say that scarlet portrays sin, not only to denote its dreadful character, but also to describe its indelible nature. They tell us that you can immerse a cloth in any other color and the stain can be removed. But once red dye has thoroughly set in a piece of goods, however, no scientific method is known that can successfully eliminate it without damaging the fabric. Even if the material is rubbed and scrubbed until threadbare, the fibers that are left will still retain their crimson hue. Sin is thus pictured as being indelible, as far as human efforts to remove it are concerned. There is nothing man himself can do to change his evil nature and turn it into the whole purity, the white purity of holiness. God alone has the power to erase the terrible stain of our sin. And that's what God offers in Jesus Christ. He also offers restoration that will come in our future. And we turn to chapter 2. And we can have an entire sermon on these verses, but I'll touch them quickly, three points in these sermons. First, we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, he cites the mountain because that's important in all of the religions of the day. Because the religions would build their altars and their temples on the highest mountains in their regions because they felt that makes them closest to God. Here it says, there's going to be one mountain that people go to. It's going to be the Lord's mountain. 
There's going to be that day when we all come to our senses and believe there's only one true God. That's Yahweh. And so we will be a world united in our worship of him. All nations will flow to it. Continues, Isaiah continues. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Not only will we all worship God, but we will all treasure God's words. We will put him on the throne of our lives. We will allow him to define what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. He will be the center of all morality and will, all the nations will turn to him. And we will begin to live out lives of love of God and love of a neighbor as ourselves. And he continues, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No more war. Peace on earth. It's what we all desire. Go back to that New York Times ad. Meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. And that's exactly what is described here. Not by us putting it together, but by God, what, what God will do for us. We all want peace. The United Nations was founded to bring peace to our world. And outside the United Nations is a statue of a man beating his sword into a plowshare. That's the United Nations mission. And since the United Nations was founded, and I picked up this article written six years ago, since its foundation, founding, there have been 150 wars and 100 million people have died in those wars. We desire peace, but we can't bring it. But when people come and worship on the mountain of Yahweh, when we treasure God's word, that's when we will beat our swords into plowshares. It is Jesus Christ who will bring these. What's the meaning of Christmas? That while we were yet sinners, rebellious against God, under judgment, God sent his son to bear that judgment so we could have our sins, though they be as crimson, comes white as snow, so that he will one day fix everything that's broken in our world. That's cause for celebration. But we won't understand the wonders of what Christ has done till we understand the condition that we are in. 
You know, when I was in third grade, I thought I was a comedian. And so one day we're in the lunch line and the teacher comes by and says, okay, everybody get in the line. So I turn to the kid next to me and I say, get into the lion, roar, lion. The teacher heard that and turned sharply toward me. He said, I want to see you in my room before school tomorrow. A sense of dread came over me. It didn't leave me all day. It was a shadow over everything I did. What's he going to do to me tomorrow morning? I could barely sleep. I woke up. That dread was still there. What is he going to do to me? I knew I had wronged him. I knew he was the authority. I knew he had a right to bring the hammer down on me. So I went to his room. He looked at me and said, who are you? I said, uh, you told me to come and see you at lunch. He said, yeah, go to your class. The sense of relief. What a new lease on life. There was a peace, a joy, an excitement about living. And of course, that is absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has done. But we don't get it because we don't have that sense of dread and fear because we don't believe the depths of our sinfulness. We don't believe that God is holy and just and has to punish our sins. And therefore, we don't say, I need a Savior, but God has provided one for me. And it's in Jesus Christ. And when I get receive him and have that forgiveness there's relief there's peace there's joy there's excitement about life and then when we receive that let us follow the last words of Isaiah in this passage O house of Jacob come let us walk in the light of the Lord our Father, we thank you for your promises. We are excited about this Advent season where the wonders of Christ are uncovered week after week. In Jesus' name. Yes, we have sinned against God. Let's acknowledge that this morning by reading our confession together. If these express your heart, join me. Our Father, help us to see our sins as you see them. We confess we've built our identity on earthly values rather than on the truth that we are your beloved children. We confess that we seek fulfillment in things that do not satisfy rather than in you. That we rebel against you by seeking our own way rather than yours. That we fill our minds with sinful thoughts and our hearts with sinful inclinations. That we pursue the pleasures of sin rather than your purposes. That selfishness rules our lives rather than the gospel.
Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has taken all of those sins. Praise you, Father, for sending your Son to be our Savior. Amen.